Welcome to episode three of the Pendulum Podcast. The Pendulum Podcast is an open exchange of information and ideas intended for professionals in the right-of-way industry. This podcast is for anybody interested in the infrastructure that supports our standard of living. This includes everything from roads to rails to trails to powers to pipelines and parks, libraries and public places, and all the amenities that we enjoy. You may also be interested in our discussions if you have been affected or displaced by those types of projects, whether through relocation or eminent domain, or if you simply appreciate the amenities of the modern world. Today's podcast is sponsored by Pendulum Land Services, a full-service right-of-way acquisition firm managed by industry experts who are dedicated to the integrity of the right-of-way process. Visit them at www.pendulumland.com. With us today is our regular crew, Kristen Bennett from Texas. What, what? And Ross Green, an eminent domain attorney from Virginia. I'm not saying what, what. What up, Ross? And today, also, we have a special guest from our sponsor, directly from Pendulum Land Services. Carrie Lynn Hirsch is joining us on the line. I think she's mainly interested... Uh, in surveying the quality of this broadcast and ensuring that we don't use any naughty words on the air. But Carrie Lynn is going to join us today as well. Say hello, Carrie Lynn. What up? Hello, Carrie Lynn. What up? There, that's a good start. <laughs> good start. So episode three, right-of-way careers. What was your path to a right-of-way career? We talked last episode about how right-of-way was kind of the hidden industry, how there's this whole group of professionals, everything from engineers to surveyors to attorneys, relocation agents, title examiners, negotiators, that all come together to bring a project to fruition. It's what we call the hidden industry. And these projects can include roads and highways, railroads, power lines, pipelines, sewer, water, you name it. And what we talked about last time is the folks who do right-of-way work are recommended they don't dabble in that line of work. In other words, you plunge in with both feet or you don't get in the pool at all. So just what the heck is a relocation agent? You never heard of that unless you do right-of-way. And we joked before about what does every person in the right-of-way industry have in common? Every single one of them. You know what that is? Every single one, when they were a kid, dreamed of doing something other than becoming a right-of-way professional. <laughs> There are more people in this industry who kind of stumbled in it than any, any other industry. I don't think there are any majors for right-of-way in colleges. So we're going to talk about how each of us kind of stumbled into this. Uh, and to get into it, I think everybody should go around and tell us, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? And I bet your answer is not a right-of-way professional. Well, I'll start. Sure. I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And I don't really know why, other than what I remember going to Mount Vernon one time and they were doing some kind of excavation. And I was so fascinated by it. And I watched them like dig artifacts up and brush them off for a long time. So long that my parents left me there because they didn't realize that I wasn't following them. And I got lost at Mount Vernon for like three hours. And my parents were terrified. And I turned myself in to Lost and Found. 
good news, everything was okay. I did not turn out to be an archaeologist, but that's what I wanted to do. Uh, that nobody pulled up in a box van and asked if you wanted any candy or said they had a box of no, puppies or anything? No, that did not happen. Not at Mount Vernon. Nope. Oh, okay. <laughs> Other places, yes. Yes. If we're, if we're just talking about the day at Mount Vernon when I got lost, no, that didn't happen. So if somebody pulls up in a box van and says, I got a box of puppies, you, what do you say back? Can, Can I hold one? <laughs> Precisely, yes. Did you want to be a kidnapper when you were a kid? <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't remember really what I wanted to be, but my dad tells me that well, I wanted to be a farmer when I was five. <laughs> I don't work hard enough to be a farmer. And then soon after that, I wanted to be in the Army. And I have no recollection of either of those aspirations. I will say that uh, as early as age 12 or 13, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. So I pretty much ruined my life at an early age in adolescence. Nice. What about you, Carolyn? Well, the only thing I can actually remember that I wanted to be was I wanted to be a ballerina. I took dance lessons, like, from the time I was, like, four, and I really wanted to be a ballerina. The problem was, even though I took dance lessons from the time I was four, I couldn't dance at all. No matter how hard anybody tried to help me, I couldn't dance, but I was bound and determined to be a ballerina. Probably all the way through, like, junior high school, and then I just got more interested in other things that didn't quite line up with dancing anymore, so I gave it up, which is probably good for the ballet world in general. <laughs> and good for the right-of-way industry because you found the right profession. Okay, you know, this ought to be good. Uh, what do you think Ross Green wanted to be when he was a kid? This ought to be good. Uh, I don't know. I wanted to be a chef, actually. But anyway, it's good that we didn't pick that up. My knees are too bad to be a chef. Hmm. Well, this brings me to my next question for the group. <laughs> <laughs> which just rolls right off the tongue. So, guys, what word in the English language do you hate the most? Oh, oh. If you can, like, pick a word, what word do you hate the most? I can't even say mine. I can't even say it, but I will spell it for you. I hope I spell it right. M-O-I-S-T. <laughs> no, no laughing at that. That is a terrible word. And if you have a, a cake that's really nice and not dry, you can say it's really nice and not dry or that it's juicy, but you don't ever need to describe a cake as that word or anything for that matter, ever. Who describes a cake as juicy? Well, it's better than calling it M-O-I-S-T. That's I, disgusting. I seem to recall in the 1980s that word, which shall not be said on this podcast, was a big word on the Letterman show. Oh, and he I, would yeah. say, it's so M-O-I-S-T in here. And I don't really know what that meant. But he would say it like slowly and yeah. like grossly. God, are y'all children? Just say moist. Moist, oh! moist, moist. Moisty, moist, moist. Moistest, moisted. All right, I'm out. I'm resigning from this podcast. I cannot. I cannot. Moist. Give him a bad sound or something. Boo! Yes, boo. Boo to the M-O-I-S-T. Okay, that's mine. So Carrie Lynn, take us back. In time, and tell us what word you hate the most. What word I hated the most back in time Not or any today? Any could be today. I really don't like the word mucus. It just, <laughs> oh, God. It just turns my stomach. You but, have to, like, wrinkle up your nose and your face hold on. when you Here, say it. Let me it. say it. Let me try it. Is that an onomatopoeia? Mucus. Ooh, mucus. It's just the it is word. Gross. It's, just, it's gross to even say it. And then what it conjures up, I just, I hate. What conjures up snot. Yes, it's disgusting. But even like when somebody says that their face looks gross when they say it. This that isn't your least favorite word. This is a retreat from your actual position. What? 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 
So true story, and I agree with you. That's uh, that word is no bueno. But when I was a kid, I always wanted to name the cat Mucus. I thought it'd be a great cat name, especially if it's a big orange tabby. No, no. I'm afraid, but why? I don't know, man. That's just what an eight-year-old Dave Arnold thought. I I don't really know what to say about that. That's a little <laughs> troubling to me. All right. Mucus the cat. Mu Mucus the yeah. cat. <laughs> No, that's terrible. <laughs> Ross, what do you think? I think irregardless is some bunk. Like, that's not a word. I refuse to admit it's a word. I don't care if they added it to the dictionary. Merriam-Webster calls it a word now, which is troubling, too. It's yeah. almost as troubling as mucus the cat. Mucus the cat. I accept mucus the cat. Like, that's in a fine, like, tradition of Calvin and Hobbes. Like, mucus the cat is okay. Okay. But irregardless. irregardless the cat can get off me. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to pet irregardless. Well, All right. Remember when you were a kid and people used to always say, ain't, ain't a word? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, who's to say it ain't a word? Sometimes I use that word in professional settings for emphasis, just the kind of way I sometimes use double negatives, just to get my point across. Because it's not just negative, it's double negative. Right, right. But everybody knows that ain't, ain't a word. But if you use irregardless, you just sound ignorant. True. Because, because some people think it is a word, and they use it to sound smart. Yeah, but I just hear it like in the context of the movie Clueless when they're like, um, irregardless, and it's like, or maybe that's Mean Girls. It's Mean Girls. Where she's irregardless, and it's like meant to show how dumb she is. I bet you wore that movie out. I, damn, I love that movie. Which one, Clueless or Mean Girls? Because both. both, yes. And Heathers. No, and I didn't really like Heathers that much. Anyway, what's, um, your, what's your word that turns your stomach? You know, I've hated this word ever since I was a kid, and it's never gotten better. And I, 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 I'm going to say it one time, and I'm not saying it again. Mm-hmm. Crotch. <laughs> crotch. Not crutch. Not crutch. Crotchety. Crotch. No, I don't mind crotchety. It's I a use different that word. All the time. You know what? That is just, that's a really pretty disgusting word, too. Wow. I think those are four words that should not ever be spoken on this podcast again. Okay, so we will vote to banish those words forever. Yeah, you heard him for the last time right here. What are you going to say, nose juice? I don't think we need to talk say about... Say snot. I don't think we That's need to talk about it. nose juice That's on this podcast. It's different than mucus. Well, why are we talking about mucus on a right-of-way podcast? Yeah, why, why, why are we talking about mucus on a right-of-way podcast? Irregardless of whether we think it's <laughs> moist in here. Okay. <laughs> Well, that's about all the time we have today. <laughs> okay, so uh, questions for the group. How did, how did you get into the right-of-way industry? And, and nobody, I, none of us, like, dreamed about becoming a right-of-way ballerina or, or majored in right-of-way in college because there's no such major. So how did you get into the industry? I answered an ad on Craigslist. Is that true? Was that like a Missed Encounters ad or something? I, that is absolutely true. I answered an ad on Craigslist. That is amazing. What was the ad for? <laughs> right of way work? <laughs> <laughs> no, the ad was for a, a legal assistant for an eminent domain practice group. And it was posted in like the middle of the night. It was put on Craigslist. And my um, husband told me about it. And I said, nah, there's not, can't possibly be enough work in eminent domain for an entire practice group to be dedicated to it. I'm sure it's one of those fake ads. Because However, it's the hidden industry. 
However, I replied to the ad with my resume, and then I got I got called in for an interview, and and the rest is, as they say, history. Right. It was one little toe in the door to jo- join the eminent domain practice group, which led to your becoming an entire case administrator who oversees dozens of cases going on at one time, and I think you've become a certified title examiner. That is correct. So that's how you get involved. Is you, it's one toe, one toe in the pool, one foot through the door, and the dominoes start to fall. Kristen, weren't you an opera singer? Yeah, I had I had a really weird and windy path to this industry. I have um, I have two degrees, including a master's in vocal performance in opera. I went to Indiana University for my master's and finished that degree. Went to New York, did some auditions, and decided very suddenly I did not want to be an opera singer for my career. And so I moved back to Texas and was kind of floundering around. I managed a hotel for a little while, a little boutique hotel. And then I taught some voice lessons and felt like a little lost puppy for a little while. And I was actually interviewing to be an elementary school music teacher, which is hysterical because I don't think I would have lasted a week doing that job. But I was qualified to do it. And I was down to the last interview. I think I was going to get the job. And my brother called me. My brother who was in the oil and, gas, oil and gas industry at the time. And this is when the Barnett Shale in Texas was blowing up. So there were all these projects, not enough warm bodies. My brother called me and he said, hey, would you want to come work with me? My company's hiring. We need people to run title. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And he was like, it doesn't matter. Like they got to hire people and they need to hire people now. And I said, I don't know how to do that. I don't even know what that means. He's like, they'll train you. It's fine. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll go, I'll go talk to these guys. So I went and talked to these guys and I went in, my interview lasted about four minutes and they're like, sure, sounds good. Come in. You know, you have a pulse and we need people on this project. So they trained me on how to run title and I was in the oil and gas industry for the first, I don't know, three to five years, three or four years, I guess, of my career. And then it just kind of snowballed from there and I went from project to project and then there was no oil and gas work and the company I was working for said, great, you can go over to the transportation, the right of way side and you're going to be our relocation manager. And same thing, I said, what's that? And they're like, don't worry, don't worry, we'll teach you, it'll be fine. Here I am. So it was really weird. I did not set out to do this. I wasn't looking for it. It fell in my lap. Yeah. I had been practicing law for over 15 years in various parts of the law, everything other than eminent domain. I was a trial lawyer, and a guy uh, in our firm who is now a judge came to me and said, hey, I've got these eminent domain cases where the Virginia Department of Transportation is condemning some property on a project, I, I need some help because they can be pretty big and they can be pretty complicated. And I said, no, nah, I'm, I'm a trial lawyer. I don't, I don't even know what eminent domain is. And he came back to me three times. And the third time I finally said, okay, I'll help you with your stupid cases. And I got into those cases and realized very, very quickly that either I was going to be an eminent domain lawyer or I wasn't. And that involved um, dedicating much of my practice to that industry, it, it involved an entirely separate set of education within the legal field. And then I realized that there was an entire spectrum. Remember we talked about the spectrum of the right-of-way industry, that the law in eminent domain was just this teeny tiny sliver of the right-of-way industry. And to be a really good eminent domain lawyer, you had to be a right-of-way lawyer. And to be a really good right-of-way lawyer, you had to understand right-of-way, which was much, much more than eminent domain. And so, again, it was one of those things where it was uh, two no's and a yes, and then the dominoes started to fall. And then this other guy on the podcast had begun working for our firm many years ago who was a trust and estates lawyer, was doing some work with me in the Suffolk office, and 
I took him to dinner, the nicest restaurant in Suffolk, to say, it was almost like a proposal. <laughs> Did you put a ring on it? I put a ring on it. And I thought, you know, he's a talented, smart, smart guy. And I thought, uh, this guy's not going to want to do eminent domain. He said yes. Oh, that's so romantic, Ross. And then he's followed the same path. And Ross, if he's anything, he's um, an enthusiast. And he quickly dedicated himself to the entire industry. He also has his SRWA within the International Right-of-Way Association. That's a big deal. What do you want, Does anybody want to explain what the SRWA is? I think we should. I think we should, too. Well, you know, we started by saying that there's really not a major in college. If you want to be in right-of-way, there's really not a major in college. No, there's not. And in fact, I've thought about this a lot. Most people end up in right-of-way as a second, third, or beyond. Some people retire from another job and get into right-of-way. It's a second or third career choice. And uh, you'll have to pardon the buzz. I don't know. That's somebody. I think it's a chainsaw massacre going on. It might on. be a chainsaw massacre going on outside. So the right-of-way industry, there's not like a clear, a clear educational path where you go major in right-of-way or major in acquisitions or major in relocation. Um and I've thought so many times how nice it would have been if I had been fresh out of college and had just jumped right into right-of-way. Because somebody that starts out in the right-of-way industry in their mid-early 20s, by the time they're my age and in their early 40s, man, they're just a rock star. You know, They've been in the business a long time and would have seniority in a lot of, in a lot of ways because a lot of people don't get here until their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. So what is the educational path for somebody? If you, if you had a kid that wanted to be in the right-of-way industry... What, what would you tell them to do? Should they go to college? And if they go to college, what should they major in? What, what would you advise someone to do? That, that's a good question. I would always tell somebody to go to college. Sure. Well, and, you know, like our, our cha- my, my chapter in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of the International Right-of-Way Association, we have a scholarship program. And we, we have, like, between ten dollars and $12,000 a year that we divvy up and give out scholarships to members and family members of our members. And we used to say you need to be majoring in something relevant to the right-of-way industry which became kind of laughable because unless somebody was majoring in like engineering or some sort of businessy something or real estate, it's like, how do you tie that? I mean, I have two degrees in music and here I am. We, we waived that rule and basically said like, if you're in college, you're eligible for this scholarship because none of us majored in right-of-way. Nobody majors in right-of-way. Right. But the, but the International Right-of-Way Association offers a path for, they've got a series of uh, courses and a series of certifications that are available to people who are interested in the right-of-way industry and want to distinguish themselves. Absolutely. And for somebody like me, who does relocation, which I know I talk a lot about, there's a, there's a specific certification for that. You can, get a, you can be relocation assistant certified. It's the RWRAC. Or you can get the RWURAC, which is the URAC. It's the Uniform Act uh, certification. And those, you know, you take five or six classes, you pass a capstone exam, and that's great. That's awesome. You can put those initials by your name, but another key element to joining the right-of-way industry, especially in a specialty like that, is you got to get your boots on the ground. you got to get your field work. So I got my RAC way before I knew what I was doing with relocation because I learned the rules, I took the test, I understood the regs, and I went, okay, I've got my RAC. But the practicality of that and the applicability of that being in the field and doing it is a whole different thing. So another key part of that is finding a mentor. And that's another thing you can do through the International Right-of-Way Association is, is – hook up with somebody who's been around a little while and specializes in the same thing that you specialize in and you can follow them around. And I did that. My mentor was uh, John Reed. He's been in the right-of-way industry a long time and I, I learned everything I know about relocation from him. And that was a huge part of my, my path as well. 
And I think what's important to note is that the right-of-way industry has been around for a long, long time, and it's going to be around for a long, long time. And um, the amount of money involved in this industry is just mind-boggling. These projects, particularly these big transportation projects, you know, the funds that are funneled into those aren't in the millions, but they're in the billions with a B. There's a lot of money. It's important to the nation. It's important to our economy. Hey, I, I looked up a little stat on that. The, okay, according to the Congressional Budget Office, th- this is the last year that I could find this, but they estimated that the combined federal, state, and local spending on infrastructure in 2017, again, not the most current year, but in 2017 was $441 billion. $441 billion. That amount of money is hard to even comprehend for me. Well, it used to be hard to comprehend until the COVID hit and the amount of money we've spent on that. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Thank you. COVID. <laughs> oh, that's a way to kill an ep- a podcast episode. This is fun. <laughs> We're in Delaware. So, Ross, American infrastructure. Sure. Uh, I guess the point is that it's not going away. We have a giant infrastructure system in America. And people take it for granted that you can just drive to wherever you want to go, do whatever you want to do, and move around how you want to move around, and things are somehow going to get to you from where you order them reasonably easily. I mean, everybody complains about traffic and sitting in traffic and, oh my God, how bad is the traffic? And that just takes for granted everything that went before that historically, how hard it was to get from one place to another and how easy it is to get from one place to another now. But there's an ongoing cost to those things in terms of upkeep and maintenance. You know, bridges, roads, power lines, humans, everything in the world wears out. It's just you know the nature of existence. Once you build it, it's not done. People want to say, oh, yeah, we finished the project. It's complete. Okay, well, as soon as you finish a project putting in an infrastructure item, it starts to decay. And eventually you're going to get past its useful life and it needs to be replaced. And there's so much infrastructure in America right now that's past its useful life and needs to be replaced. But all the focus is on, oh, look, new pipelines or new bridges or new roads and sort of invisible to most of the world is the you know, decay underlying what you rely on every day for your electricity to get to you or just you know, to get to work. It's like, oh, look, you know, the most visible thing is maybe a pothole, but you usually don't look underneath the bridge you drive over there's a bridge by my house for a long time and you could drive under it and it had boards nailed to the bottom of it to hold the concrete together. So they had just, you know, taken some, wow. <laughs> Yikes. Um, that bridge isn't there anymore, but uh, <laughs> thankfully, but that's the, you know, the state of some of the things that you drive over and you don't take into account what old power lines look like. Cause they're in the middle of the woods and you never see them, but They're there, and the power company knows they're there, and it takes money to rebuild those things. And generally, when you're rebuilding infrastructure that's been there for a long time, you don't take into people forget that building standards have changed. You used to be able to put in a bridge, and you didn't have to do environmental review. You didn't have to deal with all of the additional environmental protection regulation and oh, you have to figure out whether the dredge material is contaminated and pay to dispose of the dredge spoil. So all of this money for renewing aging infrastructure gets planned in by the government, hopefully, assuming they have the tax money to do it, COVID. 
And <laughs> <laughs> therefore, there is a ton of work to do just keeping up what we've got and replacing what we've got, aside from expanding it further and putting in new projects. So yeah, I don't think it's going away anywhere. Before everybody was sheltering in place and staying at home, year over year, does traffic ever go down? Does a car count ever go down? And so what we frequently see, especially in Hampton Roads, Virginia, which is uh, seven waterfront cities, there's a series of bridges and tunnels. Take the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, which is an 18-mile span at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. I think they built that in the 1960s, and in the 1990s they came along and built a second bridge right next to it. So just to handle more vehicles. And I think now, are they working on putting new tubes in for the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel? I think, I think they are. And then there's the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel Project, which connects Hampton uh, with Norfolk, Virginia. And for years, that was the lifeline over the water between those two cities. And now they're, they've embarked in an enormous project, the Department of Transportation is, um, to widen that and sink a new tube. You have to maintain what you've got. Sometimes you expand what you have, and then there's always new projects on the horizon. So, hey, one quick thing. There is one thing that Carrie Lynn and I have in common that we don't have in common with Ross and Kristen. And what do you think that is? Oh, boy. Well, Carrie Lynn and I both celebrate the entire Billy Squire musical library. Who? What? What is wrong with you people? Well, Lonely is the night, apparently, with you guys. Um, okay, so I, Dave, I've got to say, I've heard you talk about this Billy Squire person <laughs> before. Yes. And I think at one point I listened to some songs to see if I recognized them, and I remember them being vaguely familiar. Right. Uh, Ross and I have, I think that we share the opinion that it's fairly generic. No. Music. Yep. It's really good music. Right, sure. For an elevator. What? Oh. Listen, he was like the champion of anthem rock in the early 1980s, you know? And uh, I, I've personally seen him in concert twice. One time he opened for Sticks. Did, did, are, are you trying to impress us with this? Yes, he knowledge? opened for Sticks okay. on their Mr. Roboto tour. And then the band Rat. Do you remember the band Rat? I do not. They sung Round and Round and I'm Insane. Uh, Rat opened for Billy Squire in Norfolk, Virginia. And I. Saw him both times, it's, and I'm so that huge fan. That to make it better, Rat is in that new commercial, the insurance commercial, the band oh, Rat. Yeah. Yes, the, yes, and I was like, rats I, okay, basement. okay, yes, I have seen that commercial, yes. and now I know what. And now I rat. know who Rat is because of the commercial, not yes. because I saw them open for Billy Squire. And uh, is it Squires or Squire? Squire. 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 S Q U I E R. And I mean, I don't, I don't want even to spell let, his name correctly. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I've been working on bringing him onto the Pendulum podcast so as he a is special So he's still, he's still around. He's not dead yet, if that's what you're asking. He's not dead yet. And I, it sounds I'm to better. me, I'm thinking, I'm thinking there's a pretty good chance we could get him on this podcast, because I'm going to just say, I, I bet he's, you know what? I bet he's in a, a, a second career. He sells insurance. He's probably got some time on his hands. He's, he's not, I mean, he's not playing Lollapalooza or something. Does that even still happen? Now I'm dating myself, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, like it's 1990s. <laughs> okay. Well, 
Billy Squire, would you say the 60s, 80s? 80s. Careful, <laughs> careful. Jesus. I mean, he was an icon in the early 80s until they came out with Rock Me Tonight, which that song, it's famous. It's famous for killing his rock and roll career. Oh, wow. Because he was, it was actually a really good song, and the producers put him in this cut-up, crazy shirt and some spandex pants, and he danced around, and he gyrated on the floor, which is not what a rocker does. I don't think anyone should do that. So his music was by himself. so good that his career was ended by some unfortunate dance. By moves. an MTV some un- video. unfortunate writhing on the floor. You know, yes. look it up. Go or go on the... Um, Let's call him. Right now? Actually, I already called We've got Billy on line one. That's a hell of an established career there. You know what? I think there's something wrong with his connection. We'll try him another time. Okay. All right. But I'm pretty sure he's going to be a special guest in the future. I'm, I'm confident in that as well. I think he's got time, and he'd probably be real excited about it. So shall we talk about the various careers in the right-of-way industry? Let's do. Number one is not doing cover of The Stroke. And you know... Billy Squire might be at a point in his life that he's looking for a new career. I think he could probably write our intro music for us. No, I think he could be in the right-of-way industry. That's right. The, the uh, he's rock already, icon yeah, thing he's done a couple out. of things. You put Rock Me Tonight on MTV, F screwed up his career. So now he's ready to, maybe he, maybe he could be a relocation agent. It's possible. So, okay, let's or do. Or a lawyer. Or, or a lawyer. He could be a lawyer. So there are a lot of different we've talked about it a little bit when we talked about the hidden industry and all the different aspects of this industry and all the different specialized areas where people work but i mean i talk about relocation a lot you guys talk about lawyering a lot is that can i use that as a verb lawyering no okay it has an apostrophe on the end lawyering with an apostrophe yes you can if you're from west texas well then we're in luck. Howdy, partners. I'm a rustling buck and bronco. I don't talk like that so much. Okay. Wayne's World Pool. Wayne's World. Wayne's World. Wayne's World. Uh, hi. We're in Delaware. <laughs> Careful. They're in our region. I love Delaware. It's, it's, um, it's low. You, you can't buy beer in a 7-Eleven in Delaware. I spent 20 minutes walking around a 7-Eleven trying to find beer one time on my way to Maine. They don't like beer in Delaware? No, you can't have it in a 7-Eleven. you got to go to a special beer store or something. Wow. Yeah, in Pennsylvania, too. Yes, they have Beer World in Pennsylvania. Beer World. I went to a wedding up there one time, and we had to go to Beer World to get a case of beer. It sounds like a aptly named store. It was it was literally called Beer World. So so Billy Squire wants to get into the right of way industry. What kind of options does he have? What what work? What kind of specialties? What could he be doing in this industry? Well, I think he would look for a mentor. Yes. And you got to learn the ropes. You just you just gotta you gotta follow somebody around. I think. Yeah. And I think simultaneously with that is um, you probably would want to pursue some sort of educational path so that you could take some courses in your spare time. There's a lot of good courses that the International Right-of-Way Association offers um, to move that forward. Yeah. But here's the question. Like, who are your employers in the industry? That's a great question. Well, if you're in the industry, you know we talk about agencies and we talk about consultants all the time. And there's a, there's a difference. Agencies are usually like the uh, condemning authority or the entity that's that's actually – running the project, like your DOTs, municipalities, counties, um, and so forth and so on. 
And then your consultants are people like me, where I, I come in and handle a, a particular aspect of the project or, you know, some consulting firms like our sponsor Pendulum handle all aspects and, and, and can be hired to handle all different aspects of a right-of-way project. So they're hired as consultants to the agency who is the actual displacing authority. And sometimes um, the power company. And sometimes the power company, sure. It's certainly not limited company, to that. Yeah. The cable company. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it goes a wide, um, there's a wide spectrum of that, or the appraisers generally have their own appraisal company, engineering right. firms. Sure. Et cetera. Yeah, there's, there's right-of-way, you know, there's right-of-way departments and engineering firms. Uh, I, I know in, in Texas, I do a lot of work with engineering firms that have an in-house right-of-way department. And then there's a right-of-way department with, with the DOTs, with the municipalities, with the power companies. And then there's all the consulting firms. So here's the $64,000 question, and it is a $64,000 question. And the question is this, like if you're, if, if a kid comes to you and says, hey, you know, I'm kind of interested in what you're doing. I like the right-of-way industry, but can I make a living there? Are there, is, is, is there, can you make a good living in the right-of-way industry? And that's, hey, let's just, let's cut to the quick. That's what people want to know. Can they pay the bills with it? Well, at this point, $64,000, buy you a pair of jeans. Oh, come on, Ross. Come on. <laughs> Hashtag ruble. Yes, Ross is convinced we're back on the ruble over here. So yeah, there is money to be made in this industry. And I think that beyond being able to make a good living in this industry, it's been a really, it's been a, for me, it's been a very rewarding career path. And for a lot of reasons, certainly it's it can be lucrative, but also it's an industry where no two days are the same. You know, it's not like I go and sit in an office and do the same five tasks over and over again. I'm out in the field some days, I'm traveling, I'm in my office, I have, I have freedom to do what I need to do. And so I think it's more than just, is it, is it lucrative? Because it is, and it definitely can be lucrative, but it's also a really rewarding industry to be a part of. So yeah, I think it is lucrative and I think it is um, very rewarding as well. Yeah, so we have, we have time for just one more question in this episode and I'd like to get everybody's input into this question. And, and, it, and the question is this, it's, it's really a twofold question. The movie Saturday Night Fever, did you see it in the theater and do you like the movie? No, no. If you didn't see it, then how do you know you didn't like it? She said she didn't see you it said in the theater. I know what I said. <laughs> it, don't touch the hair. Don't touch the hair. I didn't even see it until like... Last year? Probably three or four years ago. Really? Yeah, I was not allowed to watch it as a child at all. I was forbidden to watch it. What year did that movie come out? 78, 77 maybe? Well, it had some good music on the set. So Ross and I were not born when it came out. If it was 78, I might have been barely born, but I don't think my parents took a newborn baby to the theater in 1978. However, I did see it, I think, in sixth or seventh grade with my best friend Shannon, and we thought it was hilarious. It's not a comedy. I know. That, that's my that. point. We <laughs> thought it was hilarious. We were in seventh, sixth or seventh grade. I haven't seen it since then, so I don't have an adult take on that movie. He just wants to dance. Just wants it is to an dance. awful, awful movie. Why say ye? It, there's no plot. He wants to dance. The That's acting. not a plot. You don't like dirty dancing, but but you where they just want to dance, and then you throw in some really heavy issues along with that. But they just want to dance. But it actually has some heavy issues. This thing is basically nothing but Travolta's hair and pants. So you've seen it. 
Heron Pantson. Yes. Heron and Panson. Did you like it? Are you beatboxing to Heron Pants? Yeah. Did you did you like Saturday Night Fever? No. When did you like see the it? height yes. of the height of Travolta's career was Pulp Fiction, and pretty much everything else is trash. Oh, that's no. a little strong. What about Greece? Yes. What about Greece? Greece. What about that overplayed hackneyed piece of whatever? Uh, oh, Gosh. such a negative Nancy. I actually do out love Greece. Prequel to Greece. Okay, I'm in. I'm not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay. What did Danny and Sandy do this summer? So that's the rest of Travolta's career. You're like, yeah, Greece. You know what's funny? He has a prolific career, and we're like, yeah. So there's Greece and Pulp Fiction and Saturday Night Fever, and then all that other stuff. You know, was he in Top Gun? No. no. Doesn't it feel like he should have been in Top no. Gun? No. Oh. No. I feel like he should have been in like Con Air, but then that's Nick Cage, who has kind of a similar. But trajectory you feel that where they're because, like they're both in like these kind of generic. Well, you movies. feel that way because of Face Off. <gasps> face Off. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Was face John off. Travolta in Face Off? Yeah, he yes. was the he was was he the good guy or the bad guy? He it's was Face Off. You can't they're tell both. Which is so that funny was... because like their bodies didn't change; they just cut their faces off. Like that's not. It's so stupid. But I thought that movie was really good at the time. It's really not. It's really no. yeah. But I also thought Saturday Night Fever was really funny in seventh grade. How about Footloose? How about it? That was a Saturday Night Fever. You got to talk in the microphone. That was a Saturday Night Fever of the 1980s. Footloose. The is boy a just movie. wants to dance. That was a yeah. great movie. Oh, are you kidding me? Yeah, because it's not John Travolta, and it's not. It's Kevin Disco. Bacon, which I am pretty good friends with. Kevin Bacon. I ran into him in a Starbucks in Alexandria, Virginia, one time, and we hit it off. Did you? Did you? Did you exchange him the cream? Did you? Did you exchange any words at all? No. I think he grunted when I handed him the cream, and then that. That solidified your friendship, your lifelong <laughs> yeah. brotherhood. I mean, we're tight. Can you get him on the podcast with Billy Square? Probably. He's not doing much. Get him on the phone right now. I guarantee you he's doing more than Billy Squire. Yeah, I think Billy Squire is going to be an easier get for us. Okay, then what was the dance movie of the 90s? Oh, oh. Uh, you know, it was probably one of those that I didn't watch. Like the ones oh. with like, um, they're more hip hop. There's like a whole bunch of hip hop dance movies. Isn't from the it 90s. Step Up? Step up, yeah, or like save the last oh, dance you got or served. something. Oh, you got yeah. Served. See, I didn't really see. I didn't really see. I think those were maybe the dance. Mo- Wait a minute, we're forgetting one. Center stage was Never that heard in the nineties? Oh it's you're the only ballet. Carrie Lynn, this is right in line with your childhood dream. You're out in the wilderness on your own on this one, Kristen. I don't remember Fine. much of the nineties. Ballet movie. <laughs> What's wrong with the ballet movie? There, are, there really aren't many good dancing movies. I think is the moral of this story. And, and the, the best part about Footloose is that the scene where it featured Bang Your Head by Quiet Riot when he's driving in his little yellow car. What, what about Flashdance? I was going to say Flashdance is much more iconic. What? She does the thing and pulls the water down on her head. Everybody knows that scene. I rest my case. There are no good dancing movies. <laughs> Except for Ross. Dirty dancing because nobody puts baby in the corner. Nobody puts baby in the corner. Nobody knows what that means. Everybody knows everybody what that means. Everybody knows what that means. You it's can't even tell me phrase. what it means. It means that you don't put Francis in the corner. What does nobody, that mean? She deserves respect and she deserves to dance. She just wants to dance with Patrick Swayze. Yes. I would dance with Patrick Swayze. I've had the time of my life. Sing it, Kristen. That's, That's about all, I got. <laughs> all the time we have for the Pendulum Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this podcast brought to you by Pendulum Land Services, LLC, a full services right-of-way acquisition company dedicated to the integrity 
of the right-of-way industry. Visit them at PendulumLand.com or on Twitter at PendulumLand. This broadcast was produced by Right-of-Way Consults, LLC. You can reach out to our folks here at Kristen at Right-of-Way Ross, at Right-of-Way Dave on Twitter. Thank you, Carrie Lynn Hirsch, for joining us today and suffering through our podcast. See ya. Nobody puts baby in a corner.